Psalm 33. <clears throat> Psalm chapter 33, I'm going to read the first 12 verses. It says, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Play, praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto him with a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as an heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Title this tonight, Simply Rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to be assembled together. I pray as we look into the word of God tonight that we would be encouraged and strengthened in our walk with you and give us cause, as there is cause, as we see tonight from your word, to rejoice in your blessings and your goodness to us and help us to offer the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto your name. It is well-pleasing. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> The word rejoice means here to shout for joy, and then he also uses the word praise in verse 1. Praise means to stand with respect, to glory in one, or give our adoration to. So we're to shout with joy and adoration and glory to God. That's what he's saying we should do. He said that is comely for the upright. So God's people then should be rejoicing and praising the Lord. Uh, it is appropriate for God's people. You know, it's comely. The word comely means it means beautiful, suitable, or fitting. You know, there are some things that are fitting and proper or right just because we are God's children. You know, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 2, he talks about a conduct that is becoming, Ephesians 5, in verse 2, <clears throat> Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling favor. But fornication, all uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. And the word becometh there has the same meaning, basically, in other words, it's not suitable, it's not fitting, or you know, it's not becoming of a child of God 
to live those kind of lifestyles. But it is becoming, it is fitting, it is beautiful for God's people to be rejoicing, to be praising Him. It's appropriate. It should be a part of who we are, a part of our lives. Now, obviously, we aren't, we aren't rejoicing and you know, bouncing off the walls praising God every day of our life. Because we face trials and tribulations and sometimes we're dying discouraged. Maybe you're not, I don't know, but sometimes I am. So, you know, but we ought, to, we ought to be praising the Lord, ought to be a part of our lives. Second Chronicles 6.41 says, Thou therefore arise, O Lord God, into thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests, O Lord, Lord, be clothed with salvation. Let thy saints rejoice in goodness. And so here David's talking about when they brought up the... the uh, um, the Ark of the Covenant, and brought it into its place, into Jerusalem, and set it in place. And he says, there, now we're to, we're to praise and let the saints rejoice in his goodness. It was a, that was a high day, you might say, for them. A good day of rejoicing the Lord. Psalm 107, four times in that chapter, of course, there's, I think there's I don't know, 76 verses in it, but, but four times in that chapter it says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Psalm 97, 12, Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. You know, we, we, just at His remembering Him, we ought to cause us to rejoice. And of course, Philippians 4, 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. And of course, Paul was writing that from a prison cell. And he was rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord. Uh, even in a prison, there is, there is something, if we know the Lord, to rejoice in. So it is appropriate, and it should also be with quality. Verses, uh, verse 3, it says, uh, Sing unto him a new song, play skillfully with a loud noise. So we're talking here particularly about singing, and of course, this is one way to rejoice in the Lord or to praise him is lift up your voice in song or to play in an instrument. Uh, and it should be, he says, it's a new song. That word new means fresh. It's not the old song. It's not the, it really has the idea of something different from what we used to sing. It's a new song. It's fresh. Like we would say, well, this is fresh grain or this year's grain. Uh, you, know, you know, sometimes we'll say, uh, do you have any corn left over from last year? No, it's new. It's fresh. It's this year's, you know. And so this this. This song should be fresh. This, we should praise the Lord with freshness. You know, not rejoicing in what of, of last year's blessings, but in, in, again, in, in this year's, we should do it skillfully or do, the idea to do it well. Now, you know, we, we should lift our voice in song with skill, being skillful and do it well or do it with fervor. He says, you know, it refers to a loud noise, with a loud noise. You know, joyfully, with fervor, with zeal, they compared it, the concordance compared it to like a war cry. You give effort to it. You know, they, you would, you know, war cry, you shout with all your might. You, it was purposely, emphatically, like we really mean it. In Nehemiah chapter 12, uh, Verses 42 and 43, it says, And Messiah, and Shemaiah, and Eliezer, and Uzi, and Jehonahan, and Malkajah, and Elam, and Ez- 
Ezer, and the singers sang loud with Jezrahiah, their overseer. Also that day they offered great sacrifice and rejoiced, for God had made them to rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Psalm 40 says, He hath put a new song in my heart, even praise under God, and many shall see it and fear and trust in the Lord. Well, we ought to be a people that rejoices in the Lord. In Psalm 66 and verse 1, excuse me, Psalm 66 and verse 1, uh, make a joyful noise. That's kind of the idea of a loud noise. Unto God, all ye lands. Psalm 81, verse 1. You know, this, he repeats this over and over throughout the Psalms. Sing aloud unto God our strength. Make a joyful noise unto the God of Jacob. And then again in Psalm 95, and verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the Lord to the rock of our salvation. Somebody said that joyful noise is, is translates in English to a glorious racket. Uh, but anyway, Psalm 98, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelously, marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. Uh, verse 2, The Lord hath made known his salvation, his righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. Verse 4, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth, Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Verse 6, with trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord our King. And then Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2, make a joyful noise on the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. See, it's appropriate that we, as God's children, rejoice in the Lord. So it is appropriate. Secondly, it is reasonable. It is reasonable. Now, we mean by reasonable, it is logical to sound judgment. In other words, it's agreeable with what we know about the Lord. Study the Lord. Focus on Him and who He is. Who He is and then what He's done for us. And you'll find that it's agreeable to rejoice in the Lord. And we'll notice several things here. First of all, for his excellent character. Notice verses 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. His excellent character. He is right. The Lord is right. The word right means he's straight. He is correct. He is level. We, was, you know, we might say, well, that guy's on the level. And what we mean is, he knows what he's talking about. He's right. He's right. He's got it all together. Proper, pleasing. And, and so it means everything he does has firmness. You know, when you're right, everything you do has firmness and stability to it. Because it's right. It's right. You don't have to change it. Do you ever say about someone... He always thinks he's right. Well, guess what? God is always right. God is always right. And he never has to change. 
You know, there's some transgenders that are finding out that God's right. God's right. After they've done a lot of harm to themselves. You know, God is always right. And God loves righteousness and judgment. He loves law and order. You know, righteousness has to do with what is right. Judgment has to do with justice. So we might say law and order. You know, the laws God gave to Israel made for an orderly society. And our nation was founded upon justice and judgment and the uh, Pledge of Allegiance says liberty for all. You know how liberty is preserved? By law. If you don't have law, you're going to lose your liberties. It's preserved by law. James 1.25 says, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty... And continueth therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So, if I understand correctly from that, if I am to have liberty from sin, things that will control me, that's what sin does, it controls me, and ultimately will destroy me. I must be governed by the law of God. So I have to come under the direction and the Commands of the word of God, the law of God. I have to apply law to my life. I must be governed by law. You know, people today are boasting about their rights and freedom. But that, those rights and freedom that they're talking about is at the expense of somebody else's liberties. Somebody else's rights. You know, I have a right to a cell phone. Obama gave me a cell phone, you know. I have a right to a car, and I have a right to a house. We hear all this kind of stuff, you know, and welfare people. Sure, you do. Work for it like the rest of us did. Pay for it like the rest of us did. You have a right to it. You can do it if you want to, but work for it like the rest of us did. You know, that, that kind of rights violates other people's rights. No, there has to be law. There has to be law. And God is, God is righteous and judgment. He loves it. He loves law and order. He created it. He is excellent character. You know, our nation was founded upon those principles of judgment and justice and liberty for all. And we were once a nation of order. And we're becoming a nation of chaos. Because we're casting off law and judgment. They made a visit on Tuesday and on the door of the house. There was this sticker that said, this is a judgment-free zone. But yeah, I guess they don't want God then. They give kind of lip service to that, that they do, but they don't. Because if you're going to live for God, you can't live in a judgment-free zone. Because the Bible says, he the spiritual judgeth all things. We have to make judgments all the time, and we are going to be judged constantly by the word of God.
We're going to be examined constantly. But, and we should desire it. It is for our good. You know, the laws of our land are for our good. They protect our, our rights, our property, our, our person and our property, um, our liberties. So, so uh, he is right. He loves righteousness and judgment. And then notice, notice it says this. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Verse 5. I don't know if any of you have ever had the privilege. I have not, although I can go by his pictures. But if you would stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and look as far as you can see and behold the beauty and grandeur of Almighty God. You know, I've talked to people that have been there, and they say it's just, it's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. It's, just, it's like you're standing in awe. But wait. What was the cause that brought that canyon into being? It was judgment for sin, for blood. And God in his judgment over his creatures and his creation made something that makes us stand in awe out of it. And we can see evidence like that all over the world, just on the earth itself. But go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 for a minute. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 8. But we know that the law is good. If a man use it lawfully, knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers, for fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for homongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me. Now, remember who's talking here. This is Paul, who was formerly called Saul. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me in this ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. How be it? For this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering. Notice, for a pattern that which, for them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the king eternal immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now think about it. Just like God can take, can judge his, his creatures in creation and made something like the Grand Canyon out of it. He can take something like these 
characteristics of these people we see listed here in, in, in verses 9 and 10, or verse 13, where Paul says, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, but I obtained mercy. He can take wicked sinners like this and transform them into the glory of God. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. You know, Saul was a self-righteous heathen. No, oh, wait a minute, preacher. He was a religious Jew. No, he was a self-righteous heathen. That's what he was. You know, and whether it's a drunk on the street or a self-righteous Bible college student, no matter what you came from, God judged your sin on Calvary, and he can be glorified, as he says here, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, sometimes we think, we like to put people in these little pigeonholes, you know. Well, they were a worse sinner than this person. Really? You know, a self-righteous person. I mean, the morally good are often more difficult to win to the Lord than the down and outers. And they're no further. They are no further from heaven and life eternal than the, than the self-righteous person is. They just appear on the outside to be. See, God can save Someone like Rahab, Ruth the Moabite. You know what the Moabites were known for? Seducing the men of Israel. They were sensual women. Or then you have Manasseh who offered his children on a burning altar. To Moloch. Trying to think of the God's name, and it was Moloch. You know, they'd heat a burning altar and set a live, a live baby on it. That's what he built in Jerusalem, along with prostitute houses and a whole lot of things that they don't really explain explicitly in the scriptures, but they did. But God saved him. He humbled himself, and God saved him. And then there was Josiah. You know, who became king at what, age eight? And was godly? You know, again, these lived different lives before they were saved, but they all had one thing in common. They were all lost. And all under the condemnation of God. And the goodness of God brought them repentance and glory to himself. Hey, the world is full. If you start looking around, you're going to find the world is full. Of the goodness of God. He's full. We need to open our eyes and see it. You know, it's easy to get discouraged because we look at the world and we think things are going, getting worse and worse. And, and they are. But the world is still full of the goodness of God. It's seen everywhere if you look for it. Secondly, we see his 
is reasonable because we see his magnificence in creation. Verses 6 and 7 mention this a little bit, but I'm going to expand. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as in heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. See, we, we, it's reasonable because we see his magnificence in creation. Again, as we look at the world today, there is much beauty. You, know, you can go look at the Grand Canyon, or you can go to the Grand Tetons in Wyoming, or you can, you can drive through the Rocky Mountains. Now, I have seen the Rocky Mountains. And it's, to me, it's, you know, you, you're driving across the plains, and we drove from Nebraska out to Colorado at one point, wife and I with her brother, and, and, and we're driving along, and he said, see, I don't know if you can see them yet, but we're miles from the Rockies. And all of a sudden, you see this little, looks like a cloud starting to appear on the horizon. You may be, I don't know, we were 100 miles. It was over an hour until we actually got there. But we could see this, what appeared to be a, a cloud or a darkness on the edge of the horizon. It was the Rockies starting to appear. Um, you know, they're... they're and, you know, something we lived, when we lived in Pennsylvania when, it, when the children were small, sometimes we'd drive to the top of Jack's Mountain and they had lookouts and looked down both sides. And you look down in the valley, in what's called Big Valley. Big Valley's a little fertile valley. It's a mile wide, deepest point, probably 30 miles long, full of farms. And look at the fields, especially in the summer. And the wheat is brown. The corn is green, you know, and you have these different colors, and it, it looks like a, a jigsaw puzzle. And it's just beautiful. Sometimes, you know, when I start up my computer, you know, there's pictures on it. Today there was one from Italy, a beautiful fields of hay. There was round bales sitting in the valley in hay field and, and flowers along the, the valley wall, and there was mountains on either side. And I thought, where is that? So I looked it up. I said, Italy. Huh. I didn't know there was anything that beautiful in Italy. Uh, I'd never been there. So, you know, it, it made me think maybe that's where the Waldensians lived. They lived in the valleys of the Alps of northern Italy. But it was beautiful. You go to Alaska and the Denali Park, and then the glories of glories, the northern lights. Have you ever seen the northern lights? I've seen it twice. We lived in Maine, or in Brunswick, I guess it was. And I thought, there must be an airport. But it didn't look right. Because there's this light that just began flashing, flashing across the sky. And at once it was pink, then it was kind of green and blue. They're all different colors. It was beautiful. I can't imagine, you know, and it comes from up around the North Pole, and it's some kind of reflection. Uh, I, and I, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly how it happens, but it's flashing lights, and it can be pink, purple, blue, green. You know, it's, it's just, it's beautiful. Of course, there's stars and billions of this. All this beauty and glory that sometimes we just stand in awe, and yet, think about it, we're living in a sin-cursed world. You know, it made me think today. I wonder what it was like before sin. Kind of hard to imagine. Kind of hard to imagine what it must have been like. 
to have been in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Because when the Lord made it, he said, behold, it was very good. Everything was very good. In our world, not everything is very good. There is still much beauty, but not everything is very good. The magnificence of his creation. And he just, by the word of the Lord, says by the breath of his mouth. You know, if, a, if somebody can make all this simply by his word, I don't want to mess with him. I want to be on his side. Think of the power that God has. And then it says that in verse 7 that he, he gathered, gathereth the waters of the, of the sea together as a heap. And when I read that, I thought, do you ever try gather water? I'm not talking about dumping it in a bucket. You know, I'm talking about gathering up water. You know, you spill water on a table and it goes everywhere and you're, you're running in and getting towels and you know, trying to clean everything up. And, and of course, some of it goes through and onto the floor and, and it may go onto your chair and then off the chair onto the floor. And try gathering up water. It's interesting. But it says, He gathereth the waters of the seas together as a heap. He layeth up the depth of the storehouses. Jeremiah 5.22 says this, Fear ye not me? And that's a question. That was a question because the children of Israel wasn't fearing him. And this is what he said, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand? Sand? Did you ever try to, do you think you could gather water, keep it in with sand? But he placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it. And though the ways thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail. Though they roar, yet can they not pass over it. So don't you fear me? And I set the sea, I bound the sea with sand. Oh, the magnificence of our Lord, which is evident in his creation. Thirdly, it is reasonable, and we ought to rejoice, for his purposes will be done. Notice verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Now, <clears throat> he says, let all the earth fear the Lord. And we would, you know, our way of thinking is the world doesn't fear God. But you know, I really think that's not true. Let me ask you this. Why is the world so vehement against God's people? Is it because we are out to destroy their children? Or we're out to ruin their lives? Or to make slaves of them? Or we carry some infectious disease that is polluting the earth? Or we are just a burden to society because we just want to live off everybody else. Or we are insurrectionists that try to overthrow the government. 
you know, are we, are we some evil uh, that is destroying the earth? So why such vengeance against God's people? Now, you know, some of you may think, well, you know, there isn't such vengeance. Study history. Throughout history, there has been vengeance against God people. And even in the world today, you know, uh, uh, persecution is on the increase. And in some parts of the world, it's very, very strong. But why? I believe it's because we remind them of him who they are trying to deny. We remind them of him they are trying to deny. Him they have turned away from. You know, we understand from the word of God that denial and rejection of God is a choice. It's something, Romans 1 makes this very clear, it's something they have chosen. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful came vain in their own imaginations. So Romans 1 explains that denial and rejection of God is a choice. We see this from example after example after example in the Bible. You know, those that want to know God can know him. Cornelius. He wanted to know God. He hadn't heard the gospel, but he wanted to know God. God made a way for him to hear the truth. And so it is their fear of God and their choice that drives their paranoia of us. You know, even in this sin-cursed earth, if one stops to consider it, will cause one to stand in awe. You know, how can they go to a place like Grand Canyon and say, uh, I guess it's just involved. Or watch a honeybee. Where did it get the wisdom to find the sugars that it needs to make honey? You know, they'll send out scout bees and they'll go out and they'll find a, a food source and that scout will go back to the, the hive and do a dance which tells the distance and the direction of the source. And that just happened. I say you have to be brain dead. See, Psalm 4.4 says this. Stand in awe and sin not. See, the world has chosen sin over God and we remind them of that and the reality of God. Because the Bible says stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed. Be still. See, when they look at us, you know, when I look at Mia, it reminds me of Melinda and Andrew. That's her source. I'm not saying she acts like them, but, you know, she's, she's a lot better than they are. But, uh, you know, uh, but it reminds me of them. See? I can see her in them. Them and her, I mean. You know. And when the world sees us, they're reminded of our Heavenly Father. 
And we ought, you know, as God's people, we ought to fear the Lord. You know, Psalm 89. Psalm 89. And <clears throat> verse 6. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be like unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee? You see, God is greatly to be feared. He's to be feared by his people, and he is feared. He is feared in the Lord. You, know, you see these bumper checks, and I haven't seen one near as much as he used to. You know, on the, you'll be able to pick up a window or on a bumper or something. No fear. You know, no fear. Yeah, they say that the uh, you know, Islamists, uh, radical Islamists, have no fear either. But if you read uh, Chris Cowell's book, you know, before they do a suicide mission, they just fill them up with drugs so they can overcome their fear. Hey, they're afraid to die. Why are they afraid to die? Because they fear God. They fear God. And we ought to fear God. The world fears him. And we're, we're to stand in awe of him. For, and here's the reason, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. See, we ought to fear him because God's word will be accomplished. And this is why the world fears him. If, you know, they would say, if there is a God, he's greater than we are. And that puts fear in their hearts because of what he has said in his word. He's, he commanded it, and it stood fast. The word stood fast. And there's only, really, in verse 9 here, there's only three Hebrew words. In this whole verse. And they all mean similar things. But this word stand fast, stood fast means to stand firm or remain. God's word will remain. It will accomplish what he has said. Look at Psalm 102, verse 26 and 27. Psalm 102, verse 26 and 27. <clears throat> says, They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. And of course, this is repeated, or in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where the Bible says, They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years fail not. See, the Lord, what the Lord commanded, will stand firm. But notice verse ten: He bringeth the count, the Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generation. Yes, God, what God has said, will stand firm. You know, Nebuchadnezzar didn't believe that at first. Remember in the vision, first vision that he had, and Daniel told him, "You know, you're the head of gold." And then there's this. Inferior kingdom, silver, grease, the chest and arms, and then the thighs of brass, which would be um, 
no, Persia, I'm sorry, Persia was the brass, the silver. Uh, the thighs of brass were Greece, which is an inferior kingdom, yeah. And then the legs of iron and the toes mixed of iron clay would be Rome. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's going to come to naught. That's why he's told him. But he said that all of them are going to come to naught because there's a stone cut out of the mountain without hands that's going to crush them all and grind them all to powder. It's going to fill the earth. And when he saw the second vision, he said, that's the Son of God. The ancients of days. So all your kingdoms are going to come to naught. Your council is going to come to naught. You know, what happened to Pharaoh's council? You know, he said, kill all the baby boys. And Pharaoh was considered a god in Egypt. But his council was brought to naught. Nebuchadnezzar decreed that they bow to his image. But until the party was over, Nebuchadnezzar was making a different decree <laughs> and saying that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he is the God. In fact, the man who conquered mighty nations and mighty armies is conquered with insanity and driven from his own throne. Not by an army, but his own craziness. Why? Because it was pride and rebellion against God. And that same God then gave him his sanity back and put him back on the throne. See, the, the counsel of the heathen, God's going to bring it to naught. It's only temporary. Belshazzar made a degree in Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to make thee the third ruler in the kingdom. And while he's saying it, Cyrus is parked outside the gates and he, the gates have been left open by his drunken stupor and drinking the wine out of the, the temple vessels. And while he's doing that, Cyrus is marching right through those leave gates that Isaiah said would happen. He dried up the riverbed and the gates were open. He marched right into the middle of Babylon and took the city and killed Belshazzar the same night. You see, because this was the decree of God, Isaiah 45, 1 says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. See, there were gates. You know, the city of Babylon was a walled fortress. They had a river running through the city, but it was gated too. For some reason, the gates were left open. And Cyrus diverted the river and marched right up the riverbed the very night of Belshazzar's drunken party. And his decree didn't last the night. Oh, Daniel, you can be the third ruler in the kingdom. Yeah, Daniel said, Let, I guess be to thyself. Daniel knew it was done. See, Romans 9.20 says this, Nay, but, O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? You see, God made us to bring glory to himself. 
You know, all the things the world is conniving against us, all the things the world sets against us to destroy us, to try and destroy us, it will come to naught. They cannot stop the power of God. You know, Matthew 16, 18 says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And we see one man that had some sense, even though I believe he was a lost man. Acts chapter 5. And pick up verse 12. Of course, this is right after the death of Ananias and Sapphira. And it says in verse 12, Acts 5, 12, And by the hands of the apostles there were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were with all one of one accord in Solomon's porch. And the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnify them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. Insomuch they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about on Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed, with unclean spirits, and they were healed. You know, so, so again I ask, were, were these guys doing some wicked, evil work that they're being persecuted? Or why does the world hate us? Anyway, then the high priest rose up, and all they were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, laid their hands on the apostles to put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the door, prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand, speak in the temple for the, to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standeth out before the doors. But when we opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in his name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. So is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council of Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had a reputation among the people, and commanded to be put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain in all, and as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. See, God will bring all the counsel of the heathen 
to not. Your first John two seventeen says this, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. See, this whole world's gonna perish. And the things of this world and the things that people of this world try to put forth will all come to naught. God will bring it to naught. But the counsel, Lord, standeth forever. And the thoughts of his heart, thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. You know, we ought to rejoice. We have cause to rejoice. For we are blessed of the Lord. And it's interesting here. In this song, this this this. This uh, word nation means a group of people, usually non-Hebrew. I thought, that's kind of odd, being in the Psalms. That was Bible use of the word. Strong's Concordance says, a foreign nation, hence Gentiles. One of the definitions in the, in the, in the lexicon was a body. It's referring to a Gentile group of people. And he says, blessed. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the group of people whose God is the Lord. You think of it. And we're talking here about God overruling for his purposes in his providence. You know, we can we could look at example after example after example in the Bible. The pillar of the cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, to protect the children of Israel and to give them direction. You know, when they were encamped against the Red Sea, the pillar of the cloud went behind them, between them and the Egyptians, to keep the Egyptians from attack. You come to Esther. And the very night before the day, Mordecai is to be hung. The king can't sleep. And they read him those boring records. Accounts of things that have happened. And they read about Mordecai. Certifying the king. There's two men are out to assassinate you. That's the providence of God. Bringing the counsel of the heathen to naught. You know, George III, king of England, was going to bring the colonies under his control. Using tyranny. 
And we can see count example after example of the providence of God working on behalf of the American colonies. One such miracle occurred on August 27, 1776. British General Howe had trapped Washington's 8,000 troops on Brooklyn Heights on Long Island. He intended to advance the next morning to destroy them. Nobody knows to this day why he waited till the next morning. But Washington gathered every vessel he could find and spent all night furring his men across the East River. In the morning, there was still a large number of soldiers facing annihilation by Howe, but a heavy fog descended on the area, enabling the rest of Washington's troops to escape the British trap. My question is, who sent the fog? You know, there is illustration like an illustration after illustration like this during the War for Independence. And think about it, the largest body of Christians in the colonies were Bible-believing Baptists at the time of the War for Independence. They weren't a denomination then. There was no Baptist denominations then. But the largest body. You see, blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. And we ought to rejoice in him. I mean, it's appropriate and it's reasonable. It's logical. We have much to rejoice in. Just the fact that he saved my wretched soul ought to give me cause to rejoice in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the encouragement that we find in your word. Father, we pray you'd help us to consider, think on these things and cause our hearts to rejoice in thy great goodness to us, your love to us, your mercies that are new every morning, your grace that is sufficient. And Lord, I pray to help us to rest upon your promises, knowing that your word will not change. It is forever settled in heaven. And we thank you that you would have your word preserved for us that we can study and learn and grow and show ourselves approved unto God, a workman, and he is not to be ashamed. Thank you, Father, for it. And help us just rejoice in it. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.